Our lessons today come from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10, Psalm 146, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, and Matthew 11, verses 2 through 11. A week from today, people around the world will be glued to their TV sets to watch the championship game of World Cup soccer. I know all of you knew that already, and you're all planning to watch, my dad especially. But what can one expect from a church that was founded on Super Bowl Sunday and didn't realize it was Super Bowl? I don't know who will win. I don't even know who will be playing in the game. But I do have one prediction I can make with confidence. Someone will win and someone will lose. For some, their life's goal will be met that day. Others will be left in utter despair. That's the way of sport. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. But no one is on both the winning and losing side at the same time. It's hard to imagine that all the players on the field play in the same game, yet have very different experiences. Losing doesn't feel like winning, does it? Not by a long shot. Even though I'm pretty sure Isaiah never played soccer, he understood this concept very well. Before we jump into our Old Testament lesson today, I want to point you to where we are on the map. Isaiah 35 follows a chapter on the judgment of the nations, while chapter 36 starts a rare narrative section that runs through chapter 39, telling the story of King Hezekiah's sometimes wavering faith before the army of the Assyrian emperor Sennacherib at Jerusalem's doorstep. By this time, Judah was a semi-independent vassal state of Assyria, but it was practically tradition in those days to rebel when the king died. That's what Hezekiah did when Sargon of Assyria died in 705 BC, resulting in Sennacherib coming to Jerusalem soon after. Today's passage paints a picture of salvation. In fact, we have four pictures of salvation. Verses 1 and 2 mirror verses 6b and 7 in presenting salvation as a restoration of the land. Verses 3 through 4a mirror verses 5 and 6 in showing salvation as physical healing. At the center, we have verse 4b, which we'll get to in a minute. Then at the end are verses 8 through 10, which present a spiritual picture of salvation. I love the picture of salvation as a restoring of the land. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And from verses 6b and 7, water shall break forth in the wilderness, and the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The wilderness of Israel is very much like the foothills north of Boise. The, the, they are both largely dry, with occasional streams, many of which dry up in the summer heat. Most of the year, if you look out your window, you see brown. But that's not the case every spring. If you take a hike in April or May, you will see wildflowers of all varieties and colors dotting the hillsides. 
The streams are rushing with water, which was snow just hours before. And that's actually the picture Isaiah is painting for us. It's early spring in the wilderness, and the wilderness comes to life. The crocus is the first flower to blossom. And just as I've seen entire hillsides covered with a blanket of yellow or white wildflowers, the crocus shall blossom abundantly. What a sight to see. And like the people of Israel, we live in a high desert. We understand the value of water. Water is life. Without it, everything dies. So the abundance of water we read about in this passage signifies a bursting forth of life. Once again, this takes us back to the creation story in Genesis. God created life out of his joy, and here we see an encore to welcome the birth of his son. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Notice, Isaiah doesn't specifically say this prophecy is limited to the nation of Israel. This springing forth of life in all its beauty and variety could be everywhere. In fact, I would argue that it is, because this is one of the, our pictures of salvation. We know this because of the use of the words glad, joy, and singing, which all appear in verse 1 and again in verse 10, where they are used to describe the joy of the Lord's redeemed people. This is a literary technique known as inclusio which we also saw last week with the stump of Jesse, root of Jesse, which opened and closed that passage. Like the Oreo cookie I referred to last week, inclusio links the thoughts through repetition of a word or phrase. Just as the people returning to Zion is an image of salvation, so is the land blossoming and even singing. Salvation as a picture of physical healing we see starting in verse 3 and again in verses 5 and 6. First, I need to acknowledge that verse 3 is just as much an image of encouragement as healing. But I would contend it's both, in part because of the pattern of mirror images. You probably recognize verse 5. That's because Jesus quoted it, recorded in our reading today in Matthew 11, when John's followers came to ask if Jesus was the Messiah. In essence, Jesus answered, Look to Isaiah's description of what will happen when the Messiah comes. The people will be healed. And since Jesus healed the blind, the deaf, the lame, and dumb, everywhere he went, this was the evidence that he was the Messiah. This is also our key to understanding this passage, as well as most of Isaiah's prophecy. Some of Isaiah's prophecies were more immediate, specifically in the lifetimes of King Ahaz or Hezekiah. Others were for a distant future when the Messiah would come. And some applied differently at both levels. Jesus said these prophecies were being fulfilled in him, so we know this prophecy was about the Messiah and not something more immediate. We also know these things won't be fulfilled entirely until sometime in the future when our Messiah returns. It's hard for us to remember that we are living in a time of fulfilled prophecy, but only partially fulfilled. You may have heard of it referred to as the now and the not yet. We're now at the middle of the double mirror images in our passages in one, verses 1 through 7. Verse 4b must be important because it starts with, 
behold, which means what follows is the evidence for the preceding statement to fear not. And verse 4 is immediately followed by then. That means whatever we see in verse 4, it is the cause or at least the precursor of the healing we read about in verses 5 and 6. Verse 4b states, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The Hebrew word for saved is yasha, from which we also get the English word salvation. God is coming, and he is bringing salvation. But notice how? Through vengeance. What? How is vengeance salvation? To the Old Testament Israelite, salvation for him meant vengeance on his enemies. It's the soccer game. Someone will win, and someone will lose. If the Assyrian army is at your doorstep, your salvation can only mean their destruction. God's judgment on them is your salvation. Judgment is salvation. While this is true of the ancient understanding of salvation, it still applies to how we think of salvation today. Isaiah actually touches on both views of salvation right here in today's reading. We'll start with the ancient view, as Isaiah does. First, the ancient view of salvation was primarily physical. Remember, the belief in an afterlife was a growing concept throughout the Old Testament. And it's, in fact, in Isaiah 26, 19, that we find one of the clearest statements of faith in life after death in the entire Old Testament. So many people in Isaiah's day only expected to be saved in this life, saved from oppression, invasion, famine, etc. You may notice, too, that everyone in the community shared the same fate in these historical events. So they were all either saved or not together. Salvation in the ancient mind was communal. If the Assyrians successfully conquered Jerusalem, Everyone suffered, regardless of wealth or rank in society. In fact, in some cases, it was the wealthy who suffered the most. Third, salvation was temporary. Just because Judah could be saved from the Assyrian army didn't guarantee they wouldn't later fall to the Babylonians or the Romans. In that sense, the people of God needed a never-ending series of salvation events by God's hands. Lastly, the ancient view of salvation was external. While the prophets called the kings and the people to obedience to induce God to save them, their salvation itself was fully external to individuals. For example, one could easily see the Assyrian army withdraw from Jerusalem. That was their salvation. None of these aspects of, of salvation are more than partially true in the post-Messiah understanding of salvation. Today, we understand salvation as being primarily spiritual, individual, internal, and permanent. It's not exclusively so, however, because seeing how Jesus often tied physical healing to faith, as is done in James 5.14, there can be a physical element to salvation even today. We see a remnant of this 
in the fact that the vast majority of hospitals in our country were star started by the church. Also, it seems impossible that our community or even our nation would not tangibly benefit from a widespread spiritual awakening. In that sense, non-believers would benefit just as everyone else from the faithful obedience of Christ's followers. That means communal and external elements of salvation remain as well. But even with our current understanding of salvation, judgment is still the flip side of salvation. We can, how can there be external blessings without sin being judged and eradicated? Justice is a theme that Isaiah repeats dozens of times. It's a key aspect of God. Justice demands judgment. Justice without judgment is a farce. So judgment of sin is necessary to God's salvation of mankind. And this brings us to the fourth and final picture of salvation in Isaiah chapter 35, which is the spiritual view found in verses 8 through 10. It's not immediately obvious that this is describing a spiritual view of salvation, so let's start by finding the clues. First, I need to point out that this is not an image of the eschaton like we saw last week when Christ has returned and redeemed all things. We know this because verse 8 refers to the unclean and fools, while verse 9 mentions the ravenous beast. We read last week in Isaiah 11 that at the end times, there won't be any ravenous beasts. They will be content to eat hay. So this is not then. Also, the mere existence of people who are still unrighteous, which is today's understanding of those who were unclean in Isaiah's day, also proves that this is not a description of the end times. However, verse 9 and 10 describe the redeemed and ransomed returning to Zion. I believe this statement has a double meaning. It refers to the remnant returning to Israel and Judah in the near future, but also to the spiritual turning of individuals to faith in God. If it were merely a reference to the return of the remnant, then Isaiah would likely have used the word remnant, which he uses 16 times in his book. The fact that there will be a remnant of Israel and not one of Assyria is a major theme of his book. So I believe he would have used the word if that was his primary meaning. Also, verse 10 mentions the everlasting joy that they shall wear upon their heads like crowns. This sounds like, the living, like living in the eternal presence of Christ, just like the ending of sorrow and sighing reminds us of Revelation 21.4. But since this isn't a description of the eschaton, what is this? Isaiah is describing the spiritual journey we are all on now. It begins when we put our faith in Christ and ends when we meet him face to face. It's a journey that no unclean person begins because by definition, beginning the journey makes one clean. It's a journey that takes place on the holy way the highway of the redeemed, which leads to God. This is, the this is the spiritual picture of salvation. 
For someone writing long before the Messiah's coming, I'd say Isaiah nailed it. For those who are on the spiritual journey of the Holy Way, Isaiah gives us here one command. He writes in verse 3 to strengthen the weak hands and to make firm the feeble knees. The New American Standard Bible translates it, encourage the exhausted. We are to strengthen those whose faith is failing. Like Joshua facing the giants in the promised land, we are to tell others to be strong. We don't say this because of the power of positive thinking. We don't say it because we believe in the goodness of humanity. We say that because God will come with vengeance. He will come and save you. God's vengeance of sin saves us from it. In fact, we should encourage others all the more, knowing that his vengeance on sin cost God everything. As we prepare to come to the table set for us by our Messiah, who has come and died for us, let us be mindful of the only road to salvation. This road may include restoration of the land and physical healing, but always includes a spiritual return to Zion. And this one way is a path through judgment. The Eucharist makes clear the truth that our sins are judged, but the penalty of those sins has been paid by our loving Savior, who offers grace to all who would come so that no one must eternally lose. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.